Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambhutasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened. Is it going now? For posterity. Um, it's just an opportunity I take just to, as a reminder to some, but also as an introduction to, to a few of you, um, just about the principles of meditation and um, <clears throat> the difficulties we come across and why we do what we do, basically. Um, when the Buddha talks about right awareness, talk, when the Buddha talks about awareness, he talks about a certain type of awareness, about right awareness. It's not as though awareness ever leaves us, in a sense, because even in sleep there's a residual awareness. I mean, something must hear the alarm clock. It would be dead. <laughs> So, um, it's a particular type of awareness that the Buddha is talking about. And the point of the awareness is to take us out of what he called dukkha. This word dukkha is very central to his teachings and um, it translates as a hard place. And uh, we normally see it translated as unsatisfactoriness or at worst unhappiness. Um, Just a feeling of life not delivering what we hope it would. That's at its most subtle, meaninglessness, all that sort of stuff, you know, existential angst, that sort of stuff. But also just the ordinary pains and horrors of daily life. All that comes under this wonderful word dukkha. And uh, he said that his teaching was basically about dukkha, about this, about this situation we're in, and the end of it. So a bit of hope there, you see. <laughs> and uh, this right awareness was something that he himself discovered. We say that the Buddha was self-enlightened, not because he didn't have teachers. He actually went to uh, two of them we know of and practiced uh, uh, what we now call the absorptions under them, these very uh, beautiful uh, mental states that we can get through our meditation. And he also practiced uh, some heavy mortifications, uh, which we think was um, uh, through the influence anyway of the Jain leader, who was his elder contemporary, the Niganta. Uh, but um, none of the, uh, although these gave him techniques, uh, they didn't actually help him to really answer the question that was sort of eating away at him as to whether there was an end to suffering. And in his day, that would have meant, as it does to people who believe this, that it, just constant rebirth, just repetitious rebirth. Uh, we experience it every day. You wake up and off you go. You know, wash, breakfast, work, back, eat, bed, up breakfast but back. so it's just it's like it's like you know it's like a machine we do it every you know then weekend Monday off we go Monday's what is that what do you do you get up you eat you go go back to bed so is that when you take that on a on a more cosmic level of like every lifetime then it's really boring you see so so he this idea of rebirth was pretty horrific in his time and it's uh, and for those of us who who uh, understand that it's pretty horrific to think about it too. So um, 
that was his uh, that was um, the core of his uh, unsatisfactoriness really so remember he'd left his home life which had delivered all the pleasures that uh, in those days you could achieve he was fairly well to do family a governing family the ruling class and um, left that and then he did all this other stuff with beautiful mental states but they disappeared and he just ended up being same old depressed Gothamer <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he tried this self-mortification which he said was just painful and ignoble <laughs> so he got nothing unprofitable, painful and ignoble so you can't get worse than that <laughs> so you can see he comes to a point where you know, he's pretty despairing and we, you know, I imagine him you know, really at the end of his tether and uh, as the story goes somebody's passing by, a woman's passing by a bit of rice pudding and offers him and it sort of uh, revivifies him and we all know the salvific effect of rice pudding <laughs> so, so something happens at that point it says that he remembers something in childhood and I think this is really kernel that he, of how he was watching his father doing the ploughing ceremony he's a child watching his father and there was something about that watching which was different uh, from the, he was in an absorption, he was absorbed but there was something different about it from all the absorptions he previously experienced and that difference was this inquiry that difference was this sense of what is happening this, what is it or uh, the, the question in the mind just that wonderful childlike curiosity and it was that that made him think well maybe this is it, maybe I've got to investigate I've not got to try and achieve happiness I've got to investigate the way things are and then with the insight there comes the liberation and that's exactly what happened so uh, <clears throat> uh, once he was liberated he began to teach and uh, you know again the core word is this sati, samasati, right awareness and when he talks about right awareness he's talking about a way of looking at something, a way of investigating something and those were the three characteristics that uh, we, uh, we did during the sitting meditation it's seeing the impermanence, radical impermanence it's seeing how we create suffering for ourselves and it's seeing that whatever we experience is not act, does not constitute me, it's not a me it's only because it arises and passes away so <clears throat> the idea is that when we sit we first of all have to draw the attention into a direct experience of what we're actually experiencing which means that we have to come off thought so remember thought is a big barrier because uh, words, concepts, they hold our history and what it does is it makes us look at things from this prejudicial point of view of past experience it stops us experiencing things as they are in this present moment even at a very simple level, and I'll be reminding you this when you, when you go uh, and eat um, just eating a fruit, an apple or something uh, as soon as we see an apple, as soon as we taste it we put it into a category we, we measure it against all other apples that we've had we compare it, you know, and it's either a, a great apple or a useless apple or a tasteless apple but we never actually taste this apple as apple as itself, it's always in comparison with and to do that you've got to really let go of the mind got to really go, and, by, and you do that by putting your attention directly upon your taste you see, because the taste doesn't lie what I mean by that is that whatever your taste buds are giving you that's what they're giving you you don't have to layer it on top with some sort of comparison about past apples it's not going to help this present, the, the tasting of this present apple 
people who are wine tasters do that sort of in a natural way because they've really got to taste it and after they've tasted it they can compare but not while they're tasting it, it would destroy the actual direct experience of the taste of wine not that I do it these days it's <laughs> 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 only an example so, <laughs> so um, when we understand that there's this real effort in the meditation to draw the attention to draw this intelligence that we have out of its confusion with the intellect most of us would, uh, before we come to meditation, would think of ourselves as being the intellect. You know, I think, therefore I am, that sort of thing. But actually, uh, what the meditation primarily has to do is to bring us out of it. And it does that by centering upon the body. And the body, as it were, is giving you sensations and feelings. And they don't lie. They, they're not comparing themselves to anything. They're direct experience of, of, of sensations and feelings coming into that intelligence. And uh, <clears throat> what we have to do is put this question mark in the mind And this question mark, this curiosity Is not coming from this place of Oh I know, yeah everything's impermanent, I know that So I'll, I'll see if I can see, of course I can see it You know the breath rises and falls away, it's a problem you know But the thing is that to do that is again coming from this uh, perceptual level From this, this, this conceptual level of transiency It's not actually drawing us into the fact that this me is also arising and passing away this, that, you know, I, the mind is capable of joining all these things together to give us this sense of continuity um, we have that example in a film I mean we know, uh, well in the old films we're on the DVD but in, uh, <laughs> in the old films when you had those little frames and they all shot off at a, different, at a different speed we know that they're all separate frames but we don't see that, you don't see it what you see is continuous action and continuous, and continuous sound that's the magic of the mind but unfortunately it confuses us at this very deep level of thinking that I'm always existing so I know my body's changed, I have pictures of me a little baby so I know it's changed but I haven't changed huh? and my emotions are not the same as they were with three but I haven't changed my thoughts are not the same as they were even a few years ago but I haven't changed there's always something in me that says, well I haven't changed you know, this, so where's that coming from? where's this sense of I coming from? this, this idea that, well in the midst of all this change, it's quite obvious to me uh, I'm not changing, I'm absolutely, I'm there all the time where is it? where, where are you going to find this I? so, by investigating, by really uh, looking into uh, what we're actually experiencing we're also undermining the way that we create out of these experiences this continuous sense of I See? so that radical uh, sense of impermanence uh, is achieved through you know, very closely observing everything which arises and recognizing that in fact even the process of cognition the process of moment to moment consciousness only arises with an object you can't, be, you can't be conscious of a non-object so if there's non-object, where, where's consciousness gone? now that's one thing that we very much associate with is our, is our act of cognition, our act of consciousness so that's one way of achieving it, the other way of course uh, where we see transience and it really hits deep within us is when somebody dies 
uh, especially when somebody close to us dies, you know, and it really, really hits us hard. The Buddha says people don't really wake up until it hits you hard, see, until, until the doctor says you've only got six weeks to go. And then you hit this business of, well, who am I, see? So this who am I is a very deep question, uh, which is actually the, uh, one of the core questions of Korean Zen Buddhism. That's the koan, for those of you who know the koan system of asking a question. Uh, that's, their, that's their question. They don't, they don't do all that funny stuff about, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping. They just, <laughs> they're just happy with saying, who am I? If the, if the mind answers, you know it's deluded. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> so as soon as the mind tells you who you are, you know that's it can't be that. But you're really stuck. So this sense of, uh, the, the actual grasp of impermanence is uh, one way of, of breaking through the delusion of the world we create as something constant, something continuous, something substantial. And it is said that even that would take us to the end, even, even just constantly being aware of, of impermanence would actually bring us to the end of our, of our suffering and unsatisfactoriness. In fact, there's a nice little tale, which I'm sure some of you know, about uh, a monk who was so dull-minded that he said that when he, in those days, remember, they had to learn uh, the, uh, the teachings. Uh, there was nothing written. It's very hard to understand what the Buddha was illiterate. And uh, he said that whenever he learnt a phrase of the Buddha's teaching, it would knock the one he'd just learnt out of his mind. <laughs> so his brother said to him, look, you, you know, you're just not going to get anywhere, you better go back and dig the fields. And when the Buddha heard this, he, he went to see him and um, he, he said to him, look, he said, don't worry about that, you stay a monk. And he said, just take a piece of cloth, and uh, a clean cloth, and just keep wiping the sweat off your face and rubbing it. And as you do that, just keep looking at the cloth and saying, Anicca, impermanence, impermanence. Well, he was fully, fully liberated just by doing that. Now, it didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't try it long enough. But, it, but, that's, but that's a little story that tells us that actually just to see one of these characteristics and take it to its, to its really depth, to its real depth, you'll come across the others. By seeing Anicca, by seeing impermanence, you see it, it's ridiculous to hold on to anything. And the Buddha says that's one of his greatest gifts. When we see Anicca, when we see impermanence in its real deepest sense, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the world worth holding on to. That's the Buddha's word. See? That's, that's the liberation that comes with seeing uh, Anicca. And by not holding on to something, you release yourself from a lot of suffering. But also by seeing Anicca, by seeing this impermanence, we also grasp that, that it can't be substantial. If it can't be substantial, then it can't be me, it can't be mine, etc. So Anicca, impermanence, is a gateway into the other two uh, characteristics of existence. The second one is concerned with uh, the second noble truth. So the first noble truth is a very simple, uh, straightforward, bold statement. There is dukkha, there is suffering. That's it, isn't it? And the second one is that uh, the cause of it is desire. The psychological level is desire. Now this is not all desire. You have to be careful here. Uh, the desire to meditate, the desire to be liberated is not an unwholesome desire. But the desire which is an expression of our deep delusion is something that we have to recognize and that deep delusion is that we're seeking happiness in the sensual world right? we think this world will deliver so long as I've got you know, the right partner, right job, right car and so on see? and once you've got it all set up you think well that's it, I'm going to be happy forever you know? 
and then and then it all corrupts as you know <laughs> so it's a case of recognizing that whenever whenever we're seeking happiness in the sensual world it's, it's going to cause us problems and that's really the uh, what, what we were doing in the meditation when I asked you to observe uh, your resistance to what you don't want so that's a desire, that's the negative desire, not wanting and your desire to hold on to and to develop what was pleasant so you're watching that, that, uh, that process of, of wrong desire um, and even that, even that, if you see that to its very end, you see you catch this grasping nature, you grasp, you grasp what it is that's actually grasping and what we're actually seeing is this relationship we have with the world now, this relationship we call the self see this is the problem with concepts, they coagulate something into an object which seems to be impervious, it seems to be impermanent um, even with like little th even not things like you know you, you say well this is a dog and you have a picture of a dog and it, and it has a, a, a sort of stillness about it, a substantiality about it but we know that the dog is in a process of change we know that's something which is very long lasting is also in a process of change we know that the, these mountains that we see are actually moving you know, I mean I've tried to see that but, it's very difficult. <laughs> but they say they're actually moving and um, it's sort of uh, grasping that that makes us realize this sense of um, every time we conceptualize the self actually what we're doing is we are conceptualizing or substantiating making it into something real which is actually a fluid relationship if you take for instance marriage you see you say marriage see that's a that points to a type of relationship as though it was something static a marriage but but you know it it has all sorts of you know it, it it's a moving it's a moving animal it moves and it's and it and it's constantly this relationship what the marriage what the word marriage is describing is a relationship that is in a continual state of change between two people right? it describes a certain type of relationship this self is the relationship that the knowing has with the world it finds itself in it thinks this is it. Hmm? and as we meditate what we're doing is we're relocating we're relocating out of the body so the body uh, a body self which perhaps we experience most as little children is something that we find very difficult something really uh, big has to happen to, to get us back into a body self like you know if you, if you catch your finger in the door see for that one ecstatic moment <laughs> there is only the body you know what I mean? no, that's the, and that, then you shoot out of it and my fingers hurting you've lost that identity with the body hmm? so there is a body self the one that we find easy to lose ourselves into is of course the emotional self very quickly I am angry, I am depressed, I am happy see we're quite happy sort of disappearing into an emotion becoming an emotion uh, in a meditation we're pulling ourselves out, instead of saying I am depressed, we're saying there is depression, there's some separation, there's some dislocation from it huh? and that dislocation means that we must be relocating so we must be finding another place within us to observe an emotion so in the same way with thoughts and images, normally speaking, we're, we're lost completely in those I mean just consider, from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep does the mind ever stop? Huh. you know after all years of my meditation 
So the mind is in a constant state of offering us thoughts, offering us images, etc., etc. And when we when we are in this meditation and we see an image, see, so we're saying you know we can see imaging, imaging, or we can uh, you have to have good concentration. But sometimes you can see a thought actually comes like a neon light just passing through your head. Um, and even when we do that, you see, somehow we've relocated out of the thinking process. Okay? So we've relocated three times, which we can do by an act of will. This is within the power of the self, the so-called self. We've come out of the body, we've come out of emotions, we've come out of thoughts and images, and we've made them objects to observe within us. Hmm? And we've discovered this very peaceful place. See, when, when you're in that place, really, 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 fight, really ask yourself, what does it feel like up here? Yeah? We're in the position of the observer the objective observer, the objective feeler, the one who knows, the one who experiences. Hmm? But there still is the sense of self. Eh? Well, you're still aware of yourself being the observer. So you can't be that either, can you? There's another, there's another object, you see. So, <laughs> so there, is, there is yet one more relocation to go. See? But that becomes completely out of, your, out of our power. Because as soon as you try and get rid of a self, there has to be another self trying to get rid of it. <laughs> See? So you're, you're into a double bind, you can't go any further. So uh, we get out of that double bind by attending entirely to what's happening. And the sense of self-awareness disappears. Now, we do that quite naturally when we're very interested in something. It's very easy to lose your sense of self in a film. DVD, and you wake up afterwards and you know that you weren't aware of yourself, What you were just watching the DVD. So why is it that after all these DVDs that I've listened to, I've not enlightened? Because I keep, <laughs> I keep losing myself, see? And I lose a sense of time, that's another thing about self. As soon as you lose your sense of self, you lose a sense of time. And it's because we enter into those situations with the wrong intention. So. Uh, we enter into a DVD say, saying to ourselves, I'm going to enjoy this, you see. So I'm seeking happiness in a DVD. So I'm seeking happiness ice cream, see. So the, I can lose myself in all these wonderful things, but it's, it's actually reinforcing a sense of self. I'm saying now, I am happy when I watch a DVD. I'm happy when I have Costa coffee, see. And we're constantly reinforcing a sense of self around an experience. Now, what we're doing through meditation is letting go of all that as a place to find happiness. Right? As a place where we can really seek peace, etc, etc. And so now, from this position of the observer, from this position of the feeler, the experiencer, uh, we have a very different attitude. Our attitude is to really begin to see that everything that I'm experiencing, which is the world, the Buddha is quite clear about that, huh? he says, this world that I'm experiencing is completely made up by me, Hmm? You, know, you have to consider that uh, you know what comes into my eyes what I see is only what I see it's not what you see we can agree on certain things but basically I experience the world different from you and this is my world hmm? and I'm creating it and when I separate out of that world that I'm creating and it becomes an object of my knowing see, then by putting my attention entirely on that and to see it very clearly as being something which is ephemeral which, is, which has no substance, which is just being created all the time by my mind, um, I'm beginning to... Uh, uh, that, that, that investigation, that curiosity, draws me into a concentration whereby I become absorbed in the process of investigation. Huh? That's a very different experience. 
you see, because that's liberating. And in, the, and in that absorption into the process, I lose that sense of self, lose a sense of time. And when I come out of it, if it's been, if it's been a proper absorption, there's always a reflection. You'll always find a reflection coming on. Because, and this is where, uh, you saw one of the mysteries, this knowing, this intelligence we have, this, this Buddha nature within us, doesn't know what it knows until it tells itself. And that's the purpose of the intellect. So when the Buddha was, uh, had this amazing experience under that tree, he then spent three nights thinking about it. Three nights he went through the uh, dependent origination one way, uh, those of you who know dependent origination, it's the psychology of the Buddha. He went through it the other way, and then the next night he did it up and down to make sure that he got it right. And then, <laughs> and then he went out and began to teach. So there's always this reflection about what it is you've actually seen. And these moments of absorption are not, you know, they don't have to be, you know, days long or something. They can be just snippets, they can be just little moments. Sometimes, especially in the beginning of our meditations, we're not even aware we've done it. It's that, it's that. But these are little turnings in consciousness. These are little, little turnings which eventually begin to accumulate into uh, something that begins to penetrate deeper into our uh, psyche by way of an, an attitude. And it's these, these little seeings that make us begin to question our attitudes, change our attitudes, and these attitudes then manifest in the way we speak, the way we act, and, and what we do with our lives. And there's your Eightfold Path. It manifests naturally as the insights come to us through the meditation. So that's what we're trying to do. See? Now, in the attempt to do this, we have Mara. Mara is the evil one. Yeah? Mara... <laughs> Mara is all the hindrances that, that arise, that drag us away from our meditation. And you can generally split it into two types. There are those which make us very excited, and there are those which send us into a black hole. Now, the ones that make us very excited are things like planning my holiday, lovely desires, sex, drugs, rock and roll, great stuff. And then there's all the aversion stuff, the hatred, the irritations, want to wring their necks, all that sort of stuff. Uh, depression and anxiety, can't do this, can't do that, self-doubt. Um, self-doubts you have to be very careful of because remember that um, uh, doubt, sceptical doubt is very undermining uh, what sceptical doubt does is it stops you from action it, it arises from a lack of confidence a lack of self-esteem and if you, if you think about that in your daily life it can really be quite paralyzing you know, if you have a relationship you know, is this the right person, wrong person right where the other person goes you missed it <laughs> This is the right job, right? Should better. The God job goes, and the else gets it. So this uh, sceptical doubt is rooted in uh, is rooted in fear. It's rooted in aversion, self-aversion. And when when you have that sort of doubt, make sure that you let go of all the fabrications of the mind, all the thinking, and just go into the feel of it. Go into the feel of it. Real doubt. Well, showing real doubt or proper doubt. Wonder is, of course, the emotion of the philosopher. It's the philosopher within us that wants to know. And that wonder uh, manifests as statements such as, well, I know the Buddha was in line, but really, I don't know, you know. And maybe, well, we know it's not a cock and bull story. You just want to make a, you know, um, a new religion and, and, and be famous. Who knows what he was doing. So it's a case of uh, a wonder. The Buddha wants us to investigate what he says because all he's offering us is a hypothesis. Right? He's, he's, not, he's not saying that he can... He can he can liberate us. 
He's saying, well, this is what I did, and if you want to try it, this is the way to do it. So, <clears throat> these hindrances, which draw the mind away, uh, the real thing that we have to grasp is that every time the mind manufactures a dream based on an emotional state, it is developing itself, whether you intended it to or not. Right? Because as soon as the emotion arises, whether it's some craving, some irritation, some depression, whatever it is, as it comes out of the heart and touches the mind, it wants to express itself. And there's a moment there when we are unaware, and that's why it happens so quickly, when the old habit jumps in and you have a conditioned response, and before you know it, you're off into a dream world. And in that dream world, this emotion is developing itself. That's why the mind is so pernicious. The more you think about how depressing the world is, the more depressed you become. It's very simple, isn't it? <laughs> the more angry you get about how the world is and all this business of climate change and all that, the more angry you become. See? The more you allow the mind to run away on its thoughts, the more it's developing the emotional state which is the attitude, the attitude that you're developing. So, in our meditation, as soon as you wake up from a thought sequence, a dream sequence, it's telling you what is in the heart. Is it, is it anger? Is it fear? Is it uh, frustration? Whatever it is, is it boredom? See? As soon as you know that, you come into the body and you contact directly the feeling of your emotion. You bury yourself in it, you feel it. I often come across people who've done lots of meditation who seem to have been instructed to see impermanence and to see the not-self and somehow the teaching around Dukkha has been missing. I've had enough sort of responses from people to begin to uh, perceive that somewhere along the line in the teaching of Vipassana people are not being taught to actually feel their emotions and experience them. Because I get reports that suddenly something's come up like grief or depression or something and the person didn't know what to do with it. You know? And then they go to therapy. Which is fine. I mean, therapy is very helpful. Hmm? But this is much cheaper. <laughs> and all you got to do... <laughs> all you got to do is just sit with the stuff. Right? That doesn't mean to say that if something comes up very violent, very, you know, where, where it's actually making you afraid that, that you shouldn't seek help. Of course you should. But the, uh, the healing, the psychological healing, uh, the therapy of Vipassana is in the bearing with, is in the sufferance, the, the, the open-hearted sufferance of the emotional state that's arising. Hmm? And it may, it may be that as you turn inward and you feel your depression and you feel your fear, it becomes much greater. And that's because you're allowing it to manifest. Now, you're in control of the process, all you have to do is stop meditating and have a cup of tea. Yeah, which is the great panacea, as you know. <laughs> so, it's a case of really, really grasping that. You see, every time, and this is not just in meditation, this is in your daily life. This is while you're having a cup of tea, while you watch, you know, while you talk. Every time the mind wanders, it's developing a particular attitude. See? And when you know that, when you really grasp what you're doing, then, you know, you get more and more, you know, quick about bringing your mind back into the present moment. And remember, everything you attend to is an act of intention. You know these billboards on the street, um, 
why do they still have them? You know, I mean, we've got all sorts of ways of advertising. Why do they still have these silly billboards all over the, all over the street while you're watching on the bus? Uh, years ago, uh, there was a doubt as to whether they had any effect whatsoever. So I don't know, some of you might remember, it was way back in the 80s actually, if I remember rightly, early 80s, uh, to prove, uh, the people who owned these billboards, to prove they worked, they introduced this perfume. And it was from Australia, and it had, you know, the Australian hat with the corks all around it on the top. Does anybody remember that? And it had a special name, and everybody thought, that's fantastic, and everybody wanted to know where it came from. It didn't exist. What it proved is that every time you look at a billboard, it goes in. An act of attention is an act of intention. It has an effect. That's why you don't think so much about what you're going to buy when you walk into the shop. You already know. The billboards have told you. <laughs> the adverts have told you. So, uh, <clears throat> keeping that very clearly in mind, that whatever goes into the mind is conditioning it. And every time the mind goes off on its little dreams, it's reinforcing that conditioning. So, there is this uh, instruction from the Buddha to be very careful about what we put into the mind and to practice uh, the virtue of restraint, you see, of not feeding that, that desire, not feeding, not feeding into it. So, uh, that in a, you know, a, 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 just as a general instruction about what you do when the mind wanders. You just come off it, you acknowledge exactly what the mind is doing, um, not in terms of its subject, you're not worried about what it's actually doing, you're worried about the, 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 um, the attitudinal uh, force behind it. Is it anger, is it depression, whatever it is, and you, you come back into the body. Right? And you feel it in the body and stay with it as best you can and recognize that that, that, those, that that turbulence in the body is actually blowing itself out. See, that's the point, it's blowing itself out. There's a lot of it. And the, um, the other side of the equation is this business of the black hole, you see, the pit. Or the dullness and lethargy, see. So, again, that's a mental state. We don't tend to think of it like that, but it's a mental state. And uh, it's been developed in two ways. First of all, uh, we like sleeping. Huh? Especially that one on a Sunday morning where you sort of wake up and you're on that sort of little level. Yeah, and you sort of just about wake up to get a cup of tea. And then you come back down and you lie out. And, huh? and then you look at the newspapers and you... Huh? You know that one? <laughs> So that's this lovely subliminal state of sleep, which we, which is very pleasant. Uh, so once you then, then you come and sit here, you see, and you're very still. Well, what does the mind want to do? It wants to get into this lovely subliminal state, and just <laughs> off it goes. So uh, you have to resist that. You have to keep waking up. That's why I say these three basic things about lifting the spine, open the eyes a bit, let the light in, stand up, hmm? refuse. You see, just refuse to be annihilated. That's the basic. That's the commandment. And the other side of it is that we've used sleep to escape things, you know, so when you feel a bit fed up, feel a bit depressed, well, you lay out on the couch, you know. If it gets too bad, this neon night comes up, doesn't it? Head for the bed. And you just, that's it, lay out for a few hours, you know. And you wake up and it's all been nicely suppressed, you see. Sometimes it doesn't happen like that, you feel even worse, but for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, we, we use sleep to suppress, see. Remember, all suppression is, is aversion or fear. The version of here. Huh? 
So that's why in daily life, if you have something come up um, and you know it's the wrong time to deal with it, you know, you don't want to be in work telling anybody how depressed you are. So you, you, you can put it to the side, you see. Your attitude is, I'll just put that to the side and deal with it later. That's not the same as suppression. No? Suppression has to be something negative. And that force is actually adding more turbulence to the system. Whereas just to say, I can't handle it at the moment, and just to leave it to the side, is no danger. As long as you give it time later on in the day to actually uh, contact it. So that's the other side of uh, the hindrances. Or those, well, there's only two actually, dullness and lethargy. <laughs> which draw us into this... Uh, black hole, right? So just, all we have to do is just keep making the effort to uh, wake up. And if you can, to make those feelings the object that you're investigating, right? And one way is to just keep the attention moving up and down the body and just try to find out where you feel the heaviness in the head, if it's this dullness, uh, you just wander about, you see, and the more you keep the attention moving, the more it stays awake. And you may surprise yourself to find that you can be as awake in the most dull states as you would be in one of the brightest of states. Because you're drawing your energy back into the process of observing. Hmm? And, uh, and, and the, the motivating force of that is this interest, is, is this wanting to know. Okay. So... Um, just to sort of bring it all together, we, we have to get ourselves into a position uh, in the meditation where we can observe. So we use the breath to establish that uh, sense of the observer, the feeler, the knower. Hmm? And once you're there, uh, you bring in that quality... Uh, I forgot to say that. Uh, to make the breath somewhere where you want to go, begin to experience it as something pleasant. You know, it's actually relaxing. And when we experience it something pleasant, not as something that we have to do, uh, then you, you see you want to go there. You want to, you want to actually still yourself on the breath more. It becomes a pleasant place to be. Then you raise this curiosity, you see, and find this observation post. That's still, I think, the, uh, it was reviewed actually in, uh, what's that newspaper from America? The Inquiring Mind. Do you know it? Mm, yes. Yeah, it's very good, yeah. Uh, there's a review there by Joseph Goldstein of um, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Nyanaponika. And it still is uh, the classic book on meditation, if you want one. Um, you know, easily readable. And you, um, <clears throat> you find yourself in this position of observer, and if you want, you can, uh, you can consciously raise the intention to observe impermanence or to be more aware of the process of wanting and not wanting or uh, to investigate this sense of not me, not mine, you see? And the noting is very good at that because as soon as you note something it's got to be an object, see, there. And within that process we get dragged away. So we have to be very clear that every time we're dragged away on something we know what to do and we re-establish the process by going back to the breath and that's it. And remember that if the whole of your you know, regular two-hour morning meditation is <laughs> what is, 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 is this continuously coming back into the present, coming back, coming back. That's the practice. That's not bad meditation, right? If you say to yourself in the meditation, if you sit there and say to yourself, 
Oh, I'm a little bit fed up with this. I think I'll just just relax. That's bad. You ought to feel really guilty, right? <laughs> and if you sit there, say, I'm going to do a vipassana meditation, and you think, Ah, oh, now, yeah, what am I going to do this evening? Yeah, no, I'm just, you know, I'll think about this. That's really bad. I really feel deeply guilty. But if, of, if the whole of the meditation is wondering, thinking, planning, coming back, coming back gently, coming back, make a resolution, stay here, coming back, that's it, that's the practice. Yeah? If you congratulate yourself after a practice like that. And if you sat there all day long, well, waking up, you've done this before, I'm sure. <laughs> For hours and hours. That's good practice. That's good practice. That's what it's about. It's about waking up, you see. But if you're down there and you think, well, I'll give you. <laughs> then you should really, really feel very bad about it. Yeah, you've got a confession. So, so uh, if you want to. So that's, the, that's it, in, it's in, a, in a sort of nutshell. So, uh, what we could do now is some walking meditation. And uh, would those people who uh, are helping out, would they like to go over and help? And then we'll come and do a sit at. Uh, one o'clock. I've left it a bit late now. Is that all right? Is that all right, Paul? One o'clock, and we'll do a, a short sit before we uh, take our meal at half past one. And then we come back about, what would it be? Two? Half past one. Half past two. Half past one. Is it? You need a bit more than an hour, do you? Mm-hmm. About quarter to three. I prefer to work in the morning because, you know, after lunch. <laughs> like, it's good enough for doing loving kindness, just about. <laughs> so, yes, please. We'd like to do some walking meditation. And if there's any questions about the practice, just, just stay behind and ask me them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.